All righty, welcome back. So first question, is it possible that God has a desire for someone to remain single? If so, what is one to do if you still desire to marry? So I think there's a subtle mixing of elements here. I think God's desire is for the health and happiness of every person. And his original intention for humankind in Eden was for, it is not good for man to be alone. We'll make a helper for him, someone who can help him experience the depths of self-sacrificial love in a union of other-centered love. As Adam and Eve joined together and the two became one. I think it is God's intention and design for human beings to have the, uh, the blessings of a healthy, godly marriage. However, because of sin in this world, there are changes that have happened to our physiology and biology where some people are not as suited for relationships. And it's not that God does not desire for them to marry or for some to remain single, but Jesus said that some are better off as eunuchs or living as single people. Paul in the New Testament said, if uh, it is good to marry, it is good not to marry. If you have a desire to marry, then you do a godly thing. If you have a desire to commit yourself to the gospel and not marry, then you do a godly thing. So I don't think God has an intention one way or, or another for an individual to or not to marry. I think God wants us to be ultimately as healthy as we can be and to fulfill the purposes he's called us for. And that really does depend on our individual constitutions. So if you want to marry, then I would continue. I would encourage you to keep that under the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit, asking God not only to help you find the person that will be right for you, that's an important prayer. This is a more important prayer, and I'd encourage you to start praying it. God, help me to become the person I need to be for the person that you know is right for me. Uh, it says, can you please define what a soul is and its function? Well, the word soul, like many words, has more than one meaning. It's like the word spirit. The spirit can mean breath. It can mean wind. It can mean um, attitude. I'm with you in spirit. It can mean ghost. It can mean the breath of life. Uh, it can mean life energy. So spirit can mean that. So can soul. And it depends on where it's used and how it's used. Uh, when Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul, uh, the word soul in the Greek is psyche, from where we get psychiatry and psychology, and it means your individuality. I would, uh, I would um, interpret that to mean analogous in a computer analogy, the software, not the hardware. The hardware is the body, the machine. The software is what makes your particular computer unique with your particular um, programming and, and pictures and, and, and other resources you put there that make it, your data makes it unique. So our particular development of individuality, character, choices, memories, experiences, habits that we've developed, that makes us uniquely us, that would be the soul, the unique personhood that we are. And we are to have our souls cleansed uh, from all the things that cause fear and self-centeredness and rebellion against God into a love-trust relationship with God and mature in our soul. That's what I understand soul to be. When, um, when does true conversion take place? What is conversion? It means a surrendering of the heart 
to, to Christ and what takes place whenever a person truly surrenders their heart, their life, their future into Christ's hands and they trust him with the outcome and they in trust begin following him where he leads in their life. That's conversion. It is not a legal thing. It is not an institutional thing. It is an individual heart change from a life driven by me first, self-centered fear, survival instincts toward a life and a heart that's driven by love for God and love for others. The heart has converted from me first to God and others first. Even though we're still tempted and struggle even with habits, the converted heart, when the old habits cause things to um, come up short, the converted heart grieves. And you read this in Romans 7. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Because the things that I, I want to do, sometimes I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, sometimes I find myself doing. What he's describing is a converted soul whose heart longs to live better, that sometimes in certain situations, old habit patterns and reflexes responses come out and they end up impulsively doing something that they really, in their heart, didn't want to do. And it grieves them that they still have these embedded patterns that haven't been fully worked out yet. So conversion, when the heart truly is transformed into a trust relation with God. So is equity Satan's counterfeit to equality? Uh, should we aim for equality instead of equity? It, it, again, it depends on the definitions you assign to the meanings in our current culture and what's happening in the world. Yes, equity is a fraud replacement for true equality. Equality is the equality that we all have as children of God created in the image of God uh, that was described in the Declaration of Independence that we have inalienable rights given to us by our creator that no government, our rights that, are, that we receive from God are not granted by the governments. They are inalienable inherent as children of God and the right to love, the right to to think, the right to be self-determining and, and governance of yourself, et cetera, et cetera. These inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, these inalienable rights were given to us by God and the governments um, will will try to take them away. And we see throughout history the, the ways of government abuses, but governments don't give us those rights. Uh, equity is not about actually recognizing the equality of all persons to have the right to life, the right to liberty of their decisions, including if you respect somebody who is capable, the person has the right to to not go to work, not get a job. That's what they choose to do. And then they have the right to go hungry. That's what Thessalonians said. Those who don't work should not eat. Equity says, no, no. No, no, that's not that's not right. Equity is even people who won't exercise and won't apply themselves to the abilities that they actually do possess, but they won't do it. They still have the right to receive the same benefits as the hardworking person. And we need to take away from the hardworking person what they've achieved through the application of their God-given abilities and give it to people who have been negligent in fulfilling their duties in life. We're not talking now, let's be very clear. We're not talking about using resources to bless people with disabilities and to help people that are actually uh, incapable of helping themselves. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who purposely are negligent in their responsibilities of governing themselves. Equity says it doesn't matter. We still want to advance them artificially. So a person who doesn't study in school and therefore doesn't pass an exam and therefore can't even maybe even read and write, equity says we still have to graduate them to on to the next class, 
if they're from a disenfranchised or an oppressed group to make sure we have the same numbers represented of those who worked hard and applied and learned than those who didn't. We have to have everybody equally represented. I'll give you a simple example that happened in the military. Uh, as you know, equality would be the principle that every adult has the equal opportunity to pursue their dreams. So equality would say that a woman who wants to have a combat role is given the opportunity to do it. So the rules were changed and women could apply for combat roles. Um, but the standards, uh, so the military developed a new physical fitness standard that men and women had to pass to, en to enter into a combat role because in actual combat, uh, having certain physical attributes makes it more likely that both you and your comrades will survive the combat experience. Uh, if you are physically weak in a combat environment, you're more likely to die, as well as um, some of the people in your uh, unit are more likely to die because you aren't able to fulfill your so. So it helps the unit function better to have a certain level, a minimum level of physical strength. So they made a, a uh, standard physical fitness combat physical training and anybody who passed it male or female could go into a combat role and once they rolled that and that's and once they rolled that out they discovered that uh, about 90 percent of men passed it and about 20 percent of women passed it that's exactly predictable because men and women are not equal physiologically men have more muscle mass. They have more nuclei in the muscle receptors, so they actually can uh, have more muscle strength. They have larger lung, heart-lung capacity, so they can oxygenate faster. So uh, as a population, men always are physiologically stronger as a population group than women as a group. And so it was very predictable that men would have a higher passing rate on a standardized physical test than women would. And that is how equality works, because all of them had an equal opportunity to apply themselves to a standard, and all those who passed the standard got to go and fulfill their dreams. Those who couldn't pass the standard didn't get to go. But equity said that's not right. We have to have 50% women and 50% men, so they lowered the standard for women until they had 50% of the women, uh, or the same numbers of women passing as men, so we have 50-50, in, in, and that is what equity does. And equity is not equality. It is an artificial um, rule system put on to, uh, to ensure certain outcomes are achieved that the people in power want to have. And in doing so, you always injure and obstruct um, others from achieving their dreams. You always hurt somebody in doing that. Just apply that across the, the standard of any other thing that you want to talk about, and you will see the, the corruption. Yes, it's uh, Satan's artificial system, not based on actual objectives and design law. Next question. Did, did King David uh, have ADHD or symptoms? If so, does ADHD allow us to be closer to God's heart? Uh, so it's impossible to answer that question. There is really no direct evidence that we I could that I've ever considered that could could answer that question. I think you can make a strong case that David suffered from periods of what would be called clinical depression. No question if you read some of the Psalms, he had periods that were serious periods of depression. But I, I don't see anything that would make the case about ADHD. Regarding closeness to God, uh, there's nothing that I know of that would indicate that a person with a particular mental uh, health problem 
uh, allows us to become closer to God. David was not closer to God's own heart because of a mental health problem or ADHD, but because he had a heart that loved God and was faithful to God. And even though he went through his own personal struggles and, and succumbed to certain temptations, he never betrayed God and went after other gods as his son Solomon eventually did. A few years back, our church, a few years back, our church voted uh, as a prerequisite to being a school board member that you must be a tithe payer. This has uh, made me and my spouse choose not to attend our church. We feel it is a choice between a person and God how, when, uh, and, um, you know, and the way they pay, uh, they choose to pay tithe. And besides, is the, no, is the nominating going to check with the treasurer of the church and ask before a person is expected as a board member? We have not returned to our church since. I just wondered how many others have been uh, discouraged because of things like this. Yeah, I, I I have heard of stories like this too, and I've known many people who have have come to the same conclusion uh, that um, that this is what happens. I also understand that in some conferences, I don't know if it's still going on, but historically, the the, the conferences were were so thoughtful and helpful to their pastors that the conferences automatically took out the tithe for the pastor before they got their check each each pay period. <laughs> But Tim, Tim, the thing is, uh, when I started getting on sort of the missionary side of things in my youth, I was attending meetings, and then is when I discovered the pressure that's put on pastors and so on to achieve a certain result. They are given. You have this many people, we expect this much tithe, we expect this, this, and this, and, and your job is to get that done. You don't realize the business side, how it, how it reacts on ministers who are made responsible for this amount of income. Yeah, yep, no, exactly. Alrighty, uh, so I have a couple of crystals given to me many years ago by a pagan friend who is now a Luciferian. I've been using them as decorative paperweights. Do you think objects can carry evil energy? <laughs> no, I think this is a great question. It serves exactly as Romans 14 that we talked about in class. Exactly as Romans 14. It's an object. Uh, there is no such thing, in my view, as uh, we're talking about evil energy uh, any more than there's something, some, something that you could call an evil knife or an evil gun. Uh, and not, it, Peter carried an, uh, a sword around, remember? He hacked an ear off with it. Uh, the gun, the knife, the, the paperweight, whatever. There's nothing evil. It's, evil does not operate in inanimate materials. Evil operates in living beings. Sin doesn't occur in inanimate materials. Sin occurs in living beings. And so Satan loves these ideas of talisman and lucky charms and and uh, and cursed objects and voodoo dolls and, and things like this, because if he can get people to believe in these things, then he is introduced into the mind a lie, an idea that begins causing fear and worry and, and distress, and that is the power, not in the object, but in the idea that people get into their mind. And if you have that idea and it makes you fearful, then sure, do get rid of it. There's no sense in having it. Um, but for those of mature faith, it's a, it's a beautiful crystal. Enjoy the paperweight. 
Thank you so much for your study on tithing. I've taken the calculator out of the tithing process. I believe that the Holy Spirit has a great influence on where I spend money to help spread the gospel. I don't keep a ledger, but I think it all balances out. You have allowed me to be free of guilt by not giving a tenth uh, to the brick-and-mortar church. I am looking forward to uh, sharing this message with others. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Jennings. Can you comment on Malachi 3 in relation to tithing lesson that was discussed today? Uh, of course, if you bring your tithes in stores, I'll pour out a blessing. Yes. Okay. Uh, and then and, uh, open the windows of heaven and I'll pour out a blessing you're not able to receive. Most people who read that think um, money. Uh, the blessings of heaven are not primarily financial. They can include finances and money and resources, of course. But the primary blessings of heaven is you open and re you return to God. You stay in a, instead of closing your heart in selfishness, your heart is open and the Holy Spirit is poured out and God pours out blessings in developing your character and you become a brighter shining light for the Lord. And as a putting the parables of Jesus about the talents, and if you get, you get 10 and you invest him, he gives you 10 more. As you become more faithful and more reliable, more trustworthy to God, he will pour more uh, actual resources onto your shoulder because you're using it wisely for his kingdom. So there's that aspect of it as well. But the primary blessing is the develop of godly character uh, as you are faithful to him. A friend and I have been looking for scripture in in the Bible on this question. Were Adam and Eve aware of Satan and the fallen angels war in heaven? I find some support in Ellen White, but need help in the Bible. So the Bible, it doesn't give you much information about what Adam and Eve knew. Uh, we are told simply that God came and spoke to them in the cool of the day, and they conversed with God on a daily basis, but we aren't given a backstory of how much they were told. Ellen White describes very clearly that they were given instructions by God and holy angels and warned them uh, about uh, Satan and the rebellion in heaven. And uh, so if you value Ellen White's writings, you can put that. I think if you just look at God's character, is God the type of being that we've seen revealed in Jesus who would send somebody into a circumstance without any uh, awareness of any um, issues involved, or would he educate them and give them the basis for intelligent decision-making? And so I, I don't think God would hold accountable, for instance, um, that they walked and tripped over a root and fell, that, that would not be a sin. They made a purposeful choice to distrust God after they'd been instructed on the issues involved in this, and that's what the problem was, a breach of trust with God. Uh, and yes, I believe that they were, but, but I can't point to anywhere in Scripture um, you can point to, I think, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, uh, where it describes Lucifer was in the Garden of Eden and so forth to, imp to give the case that he was there and it was there. But you can't really make a case about how much Adam and Eve were informed. Anybody else know of a scripture that talks about that? No. All right, guys, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for the way you run your kingdom and the, and the fact that all of our blessings do come from you. Use this this week to advance your kingdom in our communities and bring us safely together next week for another celebration of you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.